Hello, welcome to security, cryptography, whatever. I am Deirdre. I'm David. I'm Deirdre's dog. Yes, <laughs> one of them. We have some special guests today. From ETF Zurich, we have Kenny Patterson. Hi. We have Matteo Scarlata. Hello, everybody. Hi. And we have Ken Tuong Trong. Did I say that right? Yeah, that works. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> we invited them on today because they put out a new research paper, and we're excited to get you in very close to you publishing your results from your analysis of the Messenger Threema, doing a cryptographic analysis of yet another trying to be secure messenger that's used by lots of people. And you found some issues. Kenny, do you want to give us a high level overview of the results of your analysis? Yeah, sure, for sure. Maybe I could start just with a little bit of motivation. Why mm. did we check out Threema? Because there's like hundreds of these apps on the yeah. market, right? So we work in Switzerland. We actually work for the federal government because ETH is a federal university. And the Swiss government is using Threema. And the Swiss army in particular is using Threema. In fact, oh. it's the mandated messenger for Swiss army personnel. They have to mm. use it. Alongside that, Threema has something like 10 or 11 million customers now or users. Wow. That's a really small number by secure messenger standards. Like Telegram has 750 million. So an order of magnitude larger, two orders of magnitude larger. And WhatsApp's in the billions. WhatsApp's like three, four billion or something now. Yeah. So it's quite small, but it's very important in Switzerland. And we are all Swiss now. We also noticed some news reports saying that Olaf Scholz was using it. Olaf Scholz is the relatively new chancellor of Germany. And it, apparently somebody managed to snap a paparazzi photo of him holding a phone. And it was clearly he was logged into Threema at the time. <laughs> we don't know who he was sending messages to. Maybe maybe his Russian handlers. Uh, who knows? Oh. <laughs> Sick burn. And, and then also the final bit of motivation is people kept asking me about it. So we did some research earlier. People in my group worked on Signal doing security proofs. So Ben Dowling and others. And then after that, we looked at Telegram. Yeah. We worked with Martin Albrecht. Hey. From, and Lenka Marakova, who you know from Royal Friend Hollywood. of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, indeed, we found some really interesting vulnerabilities in Telegram. And I was giving talks about this around Switzerland to various industry events and things. Mm. And then people kept saying, but what about Threema? What about Threema? And I had to say, first of all, I've never heard of Threema. And then I said, huh? I've never analyzed Threema. Uh -huh. And then I would say, well, we'll get to that. And then finally, finally, we got to it. So Matteo and I came up with a, a master's thesis nice. project, which Kien was crazy enough to sign up to. <laughs> uh, and, and this was really Kien's master's. Cool. So that was all the motivation. Very good. Mm. Maybe a bird's eye view of our finding. I mean, you can split them in findings against the client-to-server protocol, which is this funny implementation of like, oh, we don't like TLS. We will write our own, but better, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> and then findings against the end-to-end -end protocols. And that's mm -hmm. the actual core of an encrypted message mm -hmm. messenger. And that's also quite lacking. And finally, findings about like other related protocols, like their backup solution, Mm. And there are some, some very funny ways these protocols can combine and interact between each other. Mm. This is what Thomas likes to call stunt cryptography, I think, right, Thomas? <laughs> Not the whole enterprise of it, right? Just, we'll, we'll, okay. get, we'll get to stunt cryptography. Get to and, I, and I'll yeah. ask the hard questions about <laughs> the stunt work. I, I do have a question to start with, right? We did a sort of interview um, a couple of weeks ago with the team that did the Nebuchadnezzar Matrix paper. 
Yeah. Which I thought was thrilling. And the general MO of that team was, here's a messenger. What we want to do is we're not setting out necessarily to find specific vulnerabilities, but rather just come up with the formal model that we could use to apply to. And then like you get like, you know, five minutes into trying to apply a formal model and the whole thing blows up. And then from that, you get the vulnerabilities. What was that the, right. like the general methodology here going into this? Did you have a plan to fit Threema to a particular formal model? It was definitely on the table. So we, we approached it from a neutral standpoint initially, basically saying we want to understand the security. Yeah. If that means building formal models and doing security proofs, great. That's what we'll do. Uh, if that means finding vulnerabilities, that's what we'll do. And, and so you kind of set out, hopefully, that you'll find something either way. It's actually almost a win-win, right? You either prove it secure or you break it. It's, it's mm-hmm. not usually the case that it sits in the middle. And it turns out that, you know, pretty early in the process, and I guess Kian really should say more about this, we started to find vulnerabilities. And once you start mm-hmm. finding one, oh, yeah. you, get a ta- for, you get a taste for it, yep. you get a taste for blood, and then you go from there. So maybe Kian can say a bit more about that. Like, you look at the models used to prove security of these things, and then you're scared. And rather than proving it, you want to find the attacks, I think. Ken looked into MSKE for a while and then came up like after one week with three attacks and we were like, oh, yeah, this also works. <laughs> yeah, I got the MSKE paper on my table and then I did, just threw it off the table as soon as I found the, the attacks. <laughs> well, I mean, you start with uh, reading the white paper and then you see that they say, hey, we built our own custom protocol for the client to server. Mm. And then you get the feeling that there might be something wrong. But then as soon as you find the first attack, then you are sure that there must yep. be more. And then you just go on. Yeah, like in my previous life, this is what I did full time, which is finding vulnerabilities. And like we'd say like blood in the water as soon as you find something, right? You've gone psychologically from it's possible that you're not going to find anything here. It's possible that the dev team that you're up against is just really on the ball. And then you find it like you find some big slip and it's like, okay, they're definitely not on the ball. And it's just a question of how many we can find, which like with seven findings and three mess seems like exactly what happened to you guys. So I guess like because like you guys barely knew what Threema was. I'm guessing that a lot of our audience doesn't know what Threema is. So like Threema is a secure messenger. We all get that. And it's like, it's a, it's the Swiss mandated secure messenger. But like, can we describe how Threema works? Like, I think people might generally be sort of familiar with what Signal looks like, or maybe even OTR. So like maybe there's a way to contrast it, but like give people an intuition for just how Threema works. Yeah, I mean, architecturally, it's very, very similar, similar to Signal. So you have clients who want to communicate securely, and then you have a server in the middle that's doing kind of uh, message forwarding. There's actually Mm -hmm. two main communication protocols. There's a client-to-server protocol Mm -hmm. that's protecting the client-to-server communications, uh, much like TLS could do, but but it's not as good as TLS. And then you've got the end-to-end protocol, which actually runs, formally speaking, on top of, you know, thinking about protocol layering. The end-to-end protocol runs on top of the client-to-server protocol, and they're Mm-hmm. There is essentially a static Diffie-Hellman key exchange. So, you, you know, users register keys and then you use the same key forever to communicate between Alice and Bob. And those messages are layered on top of, they're protected by the client-to-server protocol. Um, and really? So there's no ratcheting? or no. So the version we analyzed, there's no ratcheting, there's no forward security. And <laughs> we, we can talk about later Great. how did Threema <laughs> update things. But yeah. So actually, that leads really nicely to the very first attack, because essentially it gives you the same power as if you had the long-term key. So I don't know, Kian, maybe you should you could explain a little bit how that first attack. So this is attack one attack in one. the uh, no server, no clients are compromised model. It's just 
regular schmegular model. Yeah, correct. And uh, it does assume that somehow you can get the ephemeral key. And that is a little bit of a more theoretical attack because we don't know how you would get such an ephemeral key. But still, if you can steal an ephemeral key, then it is equivalent to stealing the long-term key because then you can just authenticate as the user forever. Mm, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, you shouldn't like it. But it does also resemble another attack that we that there was on OTR at some point. Oh. And it was already found back then. And uh, it's interesting how history repeats itself, even in uh, mm-hmm. vulnerabilities. So this is a vulnerability in the C2S handshake. In the, like, this is the, the, the lower protocol that you use to establish connectivity with Threema before you do end-to-end messages over it. And I, I don't have the paper in front of me, but this is the one where we're replaying the vouch box. Are vouch boxes yes. a thing in cryptography? Should I not be making fun of the term? It's the first time we didn't go to it. Okay. So explain a handshake that involves a vouch box. It's like a cryptographic blob that somehow proves, it's meant to prove that you know some key. It's actually an encryption of a Diffie-Hellman ephemeral value plus some other fields, maybe. But it turns out that it's replayable, essentially. And the idea yeah. is that if you can get hold of the secret part of the ephemeral Diffie-Hellman value, then you now know everything that's required to complete the handshake, basically. So it's, it's like asking for a signed value for authentication. In this case, it's not signed, it's AAAD. Mm-hmm. But then once the client produces this signed value, you can just use it again and again and again. There, there was an attempt to provide freshness to this value, but if you go into details of how the protocol works, you can just also reply all, all the other fresh or supposedly fla- fresh values. I see. So Was this some sort of like, you have to fall back to some, if you're not able to provide enough freshness to, to keep this from being replayable and they... It, the fallback is just like a da- almost like a downgrade attack. No, m- m- much better than that. Um, <laughs> so the, the, <laughs> the the freshness was the the client ephemeral, mm-hmm. but the client can just pick one client ephemeral and use it forever. Oh. Or in the case of the attacker, okay, you, you will pick the same ephemeral forever. Yeah, and in fact, that is uh, interestingly the case uh, always with the application because even though it says that it's an ephemeral key, it just keeps reusing it uh, and for seven days straight if you do not uh, if you do not uh, restart the application. There's oh. there's like a server-side reuse of ephemeral keys too, right? Like there's a, no, a part sure. somewhere where there's like a hash table where they're storing ephemeral keys and if you just keep probing it, you can keep them alive like until you guys gave up trying to keep them alive anymore is what I got the, the sense I got, like just indefinitely. That's yeah, um, I remember one day uh, me and Matteo were just messing around with the protocol and we just sent, uh, we were just sending some keys to the server, seeing how it would respond. And then at a certain point we noticed, wait, this key that the server just sent us is the same as the one that we got before, right? <laughs> so what happened? So we noticed that if you keep just using the same client ephemeral key, it will still use the same server ephemeral key. And playing around with it, we we thought maybe it's this sort of cache where it stores yeah. like the keys server side as well. I want to say like real quick, and I'm getting us off, off track just for a second, but like the vulnerabilities that you guys found in Threema are like, I would say impact wise, they're less impactful than the vulnerabilities that were found in Matrix. Like the, the Matrix vulnerabilities were pretty devastating, right? And these are just like... Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm using the word chat. They're, they're really, they're good vulnerabilities, right? But they're not like mm-hmm. the whole service, the premise of the services, you know, whatever. But the paper itself that you guys were, I mean, both papers are great, but your paper is full of little wonderful bits. 
like <laughs> the server keeping ephemeral keys forever or the encrypted mm-hmm. backups use WinZip and expose it. Like, <laughs> I would say that the Nebuchadnezzar paper, if they had found the WinZip thing, that would have been one of their 19 vulnerabilities. And you guys very yeah. tastefully put it off the side or whatever. It's a really good paper, right? Like, I think, you know, I want to make sure that as we're summarizing this for people, like, go read the paper. The paper's awesome. Thanks, so, Thomas. You know, we write these papers with you in mind, right? Because I, yeah. <laughs> you remember um, the mega paper that we wrote? Uh, oh, yes. We, we, we spotted how much you liked that. So we thought we should write another one just for you. It's, it's good to have a specific audience in mind. Yeah. You're a core <laughs> market. Yeah. Totally. So, I mean, back to what we're talking about, right? So we're talking about, essentially, we have a vulnerability that factors the ephemeral key out of the the handshake that you use to log into Threema, right? They might as well not have had the whole CDS protocol at this point. It might as well have been like Mm -hmm. a textbook, like whatever, you just encrypt this key or whatever, right? I guess I have two questions. Like, I have a technical question, first of all, which is, am I crazy or are they just trying to reinvent an authenticated key exchange? That's correct. Okay. So, like, you're crazy. (laughs) <laughs> no, they are they are trying to they are trying to reinvent the wheel here. So actually there are, you know, well established solutions that give you what you need. You know, TLS, WireGuard, pick your favorite or you know, some some version of noise, pick your favorite protocol and use that. I will say in Threema's defense that when they started doing this and developing Threema, it was way back. It was like a decade ago. Yes. And back then, you know, TLS was in a bit of a bad shape at that point, right? Um, yeah. I was going to ask, like, did you delve into sort of like the history of development of these protocols? And I mean, you looked at the software as it is. I was trying to find a spec. All there is is like a 25 page, 30 page white paper. I was trying to find the new thing that they said that, oh, there's a new thing coming out in a blog post uh, Mm -hmm. in response to your publishing your paper. I was like, okay, I would like to see the spec for that, please. And I cannot find it. But the going into the development history of both the software and the protocol, because I think they went in lockstep, it was not like here, we shall design a protocol and then we shall implement it after we have analyzed it. I don't think that's what happened here. They, Threema has been around for a long time. And so they didn't, maybe didn't trust TLS and they were like, ah, we'll just do this over here. WireGuard didn't exist yet as a protocol. WireGuard and Noise evolved a little bit together. Noise didn't exist yet. So it's a kind of an unfortunate set of choices that they kicked off development with back in the day and they've had to live with them and they haven't really updated them over their history, it feels like. You can actually see, if you do some Trima archaeology, you can see layers of patches on top of each other. Like the fact that the metadata are not authenticated, but they are put in a box that is in a separate message Uh. that you can strip. It was also confirmed by the team. This was an attempt to, they started without authenticated metadata and then they noticed that they wanted to and so they tried to add this feature on top Mm -hmm. but naturally that the design was not very elegant at the end and the same is true i think for the nonces the fact that to avoid reflection attack they keep a nonce database Mm -hmm. where they send they save every single nonce that's also like a sign of stratification yeah over over Mm -hmm. the years yeah and that's that's in the second threat model, right? That the nonce handling. That's right. I think, yeah. 
Go ahead, Thomas. I was just going to say, so so what we've done here is we have a circumstance where we can potentially break the client, the server protocol, right? A little bit theoretical, but whatever, right? So what, is, what does it give us if we can compromise? So the, the premise of this service is that I'm doing end-to-end encryption with my counterparties, right? So we have this whole E2E protocol where if I'm actually sending somebody a message, I've done a key exchange directly with them, right? I haven't involved really the Threema server in that key exchange. So what do I get? How do I profit from breaking the CDS protocol? So one immediate profit is metadata, and that's a pain point for all secure messaging as we have it now, that the server can learn metadata. In this case, it will be the attacker who learns who you're talking to and when, because there are some IDs included mm. in the clear text metadata. Mm. And then the attacker can modify timestamps, so can reorder messages Uh-oh. selectively, drop messages, and all, all of like the, I think, what in our attack is uh, attack three and four in the paper become open to you as a malicious server slash C2S attacker. If uh, this is the model where you, the server is compromised, which in theory, if you have an end-to-end encrypted messenger, your messages are supposed to be secure even if the server is compromised, or at least confidentiality, integrity, and probably authenticity of your messages are preserved in the end-to-end encrypted messenger, even if the server is compromised. But we get attacks on those things. Yeah, the message reordering deletion attack because of that handling. Can you talk a little bit more about attack three? (laughs) There isn't much more to say about it. I don't know. Yeah, maybe you can explain exactly where it comes from, this kind of metabox stripping and uh, metadata box stripping and so on. Well, yeah, in general, uh, I'm not sure if there's much more to say because in general you have the message and then you have the metadata that has to be added for obvious reasons. So, sur- so source, destination, timestamp and other, and other things. And uh, what they added on top is the metadata box, which is the encryption of a selected set of values, including the timestamp. And the idea is that whenever you receive a message, if there is a metadata box, the values contained within the metadata box will overwrite the values outside. So this could be interesting for some other reasons. You could also like put fake values outside and put the correct values inside for some reason. But in the end, uh, what what really happens is that because this metadata box is not cryptographically bound or its existence is not cryptographically bound to the rest of the message, you can just strip it off, set length of the metadata box to zero and then just remove it. Mm-hmm. I, hate it. I, I think what was interesting was uh, Thomas' point about if you pull off a C2S attack, then all of these capabilities are things that you can get, even if you're not a malicious server, but if you're an external attacker. Mm-hmm. I'm also, before before we completely move away from uh, into com- compromised server, attack two is uh, able to register the server's public key as a user's public key by tricking the victim into sending a carefully crafted message in the ETE protocol and enables it to permanently impersonate the victim. This is a fun, and I'm air quotes, fun cross-protocol attack between the C2S, aka the TLS-like client-to-server protocol and the actual end-to-end encrypted messaging protocol underneath it. That's fun. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely my favorite attack that uh, we really? found. It is, yeah. it is clearly my favorite attack that you guys found. So we should we should walk through this one. So the first attack that we're talking about, there's a there's a, a sort of like hacked up authenticated key exchange where the, to finally authenticate the key exchange, you send this vouch box blob 
which doesn't have enough contributing information from the handshake and is replayable. That that's an attack where you you compromise an ephemeral key and you capture a vouch box and you just keep replaying the vouch box, right? Here, am I wrong? What we're doing here is we're trying to build a new vouch box from scratch. Exactly. And the way we're going to build the vouch box from scratch is we're going to play the client server protocol off the end-to-end protocol. Yeah, that's a way of putting it. So absolutely, we're going to use the end-to-end protocol to create for us the vouch box message, which is actually used in the C2S protocol. So we're using one protocol to create a message for us that we use in the in the other. So it's like a very classical cross-protocol attack. And it comes about because of key reuse across the protocols, because of lack of key separation. And because we found a lot of computers lying around in the back of our lab that we <laughs> we used to pull off some, I guess it's called stunt cryptography now. I mean, we're about to get to what I'm going to credibly argue is stunt cryptography. <laughs> so like, <laughs> what, what, are the, what are the mechanics of this attack? Well, the general idea of the attack is that recording in a C2S protocol, what you're doing is, is as a client, you're saying, hey, this is my ephemeral public key that I want to use. And then you create this vouch box, which is your encryption of this ephemeral public key, right? And this is your encryption with your long-term key and the long-term key of the server, right? But then whenever you're doing end-to-end uh, messaging, you are encrypting something with your long-term key and the long-term key of the other person. So mm-hmm. assume that that other person somehow claims uh, the server's public key as theirs, then you are encrypting something with your long-term key and the long-term key of the server, which is the same thing that you did for the client-to-server protocol. So the, the first problem here, right, just the first problem here would be what you just said is crazy, right? Like the idea that I'm going to encrypt a message to a counterparty in the end-to-end protocol that happens to be the same key, like literally like the same Diffie-Hellman key exchange as the client-to-server protocol, that shouldn't be possible, right? Like the, the protocol itself should make sure that you can't mix up those two contexts of keys. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Either by domain separation or key separation, but we have neither. Yes. Proceed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And uh, well, after, so now you have the the client, uh, if fooled into thinking that the other person's key is the key, the public key of the server, then suppose that the client sends some particularly strange uh, message to the, to that person, then that value may be confused uh, as a vouch box that can be used in the client to server protocol. And what we did, we, we used our magical computing power that we have in the backyard to find a public key that has a specific shape. It starts with a one, it ends with a one, and in the middle, there's something that can be copy-pasted. And the idea being that you can just say, hey, can you copy-paste this into Threema and send it to this account, right? And what internally happens is that the first one byte is put uh, because it's a text message. It's just the type byte. Yeah. And uh, if you're lucky, the PKCS7 padding that you have at the end happens to be a one. Right? Because it's actually, a r- <laughs> it's actually random length padding. It's used to hide the length of the message, but with some probability will be just a single one. Uh-huh. And now you have a magic 32 byte string that can be interpreted as an ephemeral public key, of which we know the private key because we computed it that way. So like, so I now, hate it. Well, hold yeah. on, hold on. I love it All and right. I hate it. All right. So, like, just, just to rewind a little bit here, just to rewind a little bit here, right? Like, it, back in the day when Threema came out, I think the wrap on Threema was that it was a messenger that was kind of built out of sort of the design of Knackle, like the high le- the supposedly mm-hmm. high-level cryptography. Filippo Valsorda gets really upset when you call Knackle a high-level cryptography language because it, <laughs> it, it forces you to manage nonsense. Um, Filippo should mm-hmm. back off on that. But anyways, it's so <laughs> Threema was kind of like, 
as I remember it, it was kind of notoriously like this is just natural cryptography, right? So like, don't bother go looking for, don't bother going to look for good crypto vulnerabilities here because you're just going to wind up pen testing Knackle, which obviously turns mm. out not to be the case, right? So Knackle uses Salsa and, you know, Poly1305, right? It's a stream cipher. It's an AEAD, like a classic AEAD thing, right? So I'm. Those primitives are good. Those are good choices. And Threema also is using like an AEAD cipher for this. It's, a, it's like a counter mode. Uh, at bottom, it's counter mode. It's a stream cipher, right? It is just uh, Salsa twenty poly thirteen oh five, right? Okay, just straight out of the out of the NACL library. So I have to relate the experience of reading this paper. I think it's it's well it's very well done narratively, right? Because like you're you're reading the paper, and like the first thing you do in a paper like this is kind of lay out how the protocol works. And I'm reading and I'm reading. Oh, everything seems normal. And then you get to the point where you're describing how messages are encrypted, and it's like, and here we take the message and we PKCS seven pad the message which is like a record scratch like what what yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> like why are you padding the message plain text <laughs> so, so for people who don't own the world's largest collection of cbc padding oracle attacks like i do right pcs7 <laughs> is the thing in in, bl in block cryptography when you actually have blocks I, like if you have a short block you need to fill it out to the full yeah. size of the block and what you'd say is like if i'm three bytes short the message is going to end in three 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 like the, those three bytes or if it's two bytes short it ends in two two or in your case what you're looking for is a message that ends in one so it's like come up with a message that's one short the pkcs padding will be one at the end but like reading the paper it's like this is Chekhov's pkcs padding right this has to come back up <laughs> somehow like, at the end of the play the PKCS7 has to fire, right? Is there, is there a reason that you guys were able to discern why they're doing this? I think it's they were trying to they were trying to use it as a length hiding mechanism to try and give them some kind of traffic confidentiality or you know anti uh, what's it called? Help me out here, guys. Uh, when you disguise like length hiding, length hiding yeah, yeah. The, to yeah. prevent to prevent traffic analysis attack. Yeah, okay, okay. So okay. so they weren't using it in CBC mode. Because if they had, we would have found a padding oracle attack. Instead, they were using it directly on the plain text and then applying on top a, a good AEAD scheme. So they're actually randomly padding at the end of all these messages then. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, that makes exactly. much more sense. Yeah. This is, this is quite funny to me because they are trying to, they're using something that they probably shouldn't be using in this context to mitigate size uh, analysis on the wire. And then later in the paper, they're like, oops, you did a compression in your backup mechanism, mm -hmm. allowing a compression-based attack. That's very true, <laughs> very true. If they had removed that O1 at the end for the PKCS7 padding, actually our computational requirements would have been a factor of 256 lower, right? We would have been able to forge the required public key faster, I think. Is that right? Ken's nodding, Matthew's nodding. Yeah. Two hundred fifty six yeah. times yeah, faster. faster. So it did actually make our attack a little bit harder. So you know, kudos to them. The <laughs> the random padding helped a little bit, but not quite enough. I think the part that really beat them was the the fact that the crypto box it's a nice clean primitive, but does not take any context or any associated data. So like when you when you're using knuckle, you take a key, another key. Then you put them in a box and then you use this box to encrypt and decrypt. But this box doesn't take context. That is something that we, we usually want in key derivation functions and doesn't take associated data. Yeah, that's an interesting point because picking your primitives is very important when you're trying to implement a specific 
one, you're trying to instantiate a protocol and then you're trying to implement it with good implementations of those primitives. All of that is important. But it feels like a lot of the protocol decisions of Threema, the end-to-end part and the C2S, the client-to-server part, were hamstrung by the API of NACL, which is not to say that the API of NACL is bad, like pointing back to Filippo and, and Thomas's point. But if you're designing, I feel like they were influenced by the library API they had as opposed to trying to design what they wanted to have and then picking the libraries to fit that need. Does that sound that sound true? <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, specifically with the, we already talked about the metadata being encrypted under its own invocation of the NACL AE scheme. Uh, they yeah. use the same, no, they derived a key from the existing key to do that. So there was one key derivation step in there. And then they use the same nonce, I think, across the two different. So you mm. think you've got a nonce reuse vulnerability, but you haven't actually because the two keys are, are different. And there okay. it would have been okay. much nicer, I guess, if the metadata could just have been incorporated as associated data and you had an AEAD yeah. kind of interface. But that's that's not what NACL provides. So indeed, uh, they, I think they were a bit hamstrung by that. So like that, this is the the most complicated attack on a paper, right? But like the broad outline of the attack is what we're going to do is we're going to simulate the client to server protocol using the end to end protocol. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to come up with a counterparty on Threema, like a, another person using Threema that happens to have the same public key as the server. So that when we talk to that person, yes. we're encrypting messages to the server. and. Yeah. Like the the reason that's going to work, we need to like what we're trying to do is to reconstitute a pretty precisely formatted value. This vouch box part of the uh, the client server protocol, which has picky formatting, right? And so what we need to do is send a message that when we encrypt that message is equivalent to the encrypted vouch box. I'm right so far. That's it. That's it. And yep. then inside of that encrypted vouch box, there is like what's in the vouch box is the client's ephemeral key, right? The X value here. Yes. And what you have to spend a zillion, zillion cores on is coming up with an ephemeral key that could have been encrypted there that has the right format so that when you encrypt it in the end-to-end protocol, it'll come out properly formatted for right. the vouch box. That's uh, and that took you a zillion cores. Yeah. But it's a one-time it's a one-time computation though, right? So we burned 8,100 yeah. core days once. Actually, we did it twice, but that's uh, because we made a mistake. <laughs> I'm going to embarrass my co-authors now. So, you know, it's a constant it's factor, a constant so factor it's the same until thing. your code works properly. And uh, kudos here to, to Kian and Matteo. They found this really neat trick to speed the whole thing up as well. Like we got this order of magnitude improvement by doing some clever magic tricks with uh, coordinate conversions and, and parallel yeah. inversions, all kinds of really, there's an entire paper actually just to be written how we did that computation or at least a blog post. And I'm putting Kian on the spot, I think. Where, where's that blog post, Ken? <laughs> well, it will be on my blog uh, in uh, uh, soon, uh, TM. Soon. Okay. <laughs> Whenever I get to write it, but uh, but yeah. So in general, like the the yeah, the trick is mostly to just generate many private keys and then check the public key. And then yeah. what you would like to do is that you're generating this fast enough so that you can get to the choose the fifty keys that we wanted, and. Um, we did it by, you know, doing starting from a private key and then point, doing point addition on a public key, and then you take into account how many times you are doing the point addition so that you can keep track of the private key. 
And the thing that Kenny was referring to earlier about, uh, you know, having to do the completion twice is that at a certain point, uh, I swapped two variables uh, and then uh, we had a nice public key, but we didn't have the corresponding private key uh, because <laughs> it could not be reconstructed. Quite unfortunate, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. There's a fun wrinkle here, if I can just jump in for a sec. Um, it turns out you have to claim the server's public key as your own for this attack to work right. out, right? Well, the attacker has to do that. But how can you do that without knowing the private key? Surely you have to prove knowledge of the private key before you can grab the public key. Well, we found an API that allowed you to register public yeah. keys without without proving that you knew their uh. <laughs> And also, it turns out you don't have to register exactly the server's public key. You can add a point of low order to the server's public key. Excellent. Oh my because God. Because we're not yeah. on a prime order curve. We're on curve 25519. Yeah. This is why we need prime order groups. Co-factors all over co-factors all over again. So, you know, <sighs> I guess one key tick we've we've talked about some of the deficiencies in um, in NACL. I'd be so brave as to call them deficiencies. There are also issues, you know, around two five five one nine. And oh, yeah. I can't think here what the common factor is, but there's some common factor linking all of these things. <laughs> Like, this is this is great, right? Because like, tell me I'm wrong about this, but like, the common setting for cofactor problems with like, you know, like the reason we need Restretto is like mostly signing settings, right? Like, it's mostly an issue of being oh, able to create moment. multiple They're... different ciphertexts with the same whatever, right? With different keys or whatever, right? But this is not the signing context. This is like its use in an actual key exchange where the cofactor actually was practically useful for an attack. Yeah, that's very that's very true. Well, the cofactor was only useful because uh, Threema blocked our registered key so then we went ahead and re-registered one of the offset keys you know offset by a small a, a point of small order so it enabled us to reanimate the attack once uh once we had told Sima what we had done love it they might not have liked our the name of our, the account that we put there so oh, okay well <laughs> you, should, you should share that yeah, yeah so we, we call the account uh, l-y-t-a-a-s which stands for lose your Threema account as a service <laughs> well, they don't Cute. know that that's what it means, unless you like put that in the uh, description. Well, we brought it in the paper, so. <laughs> so like this attack is either sinking in with me or I'm confusing myself. But like my like the big thing I want to determine is is this attack necessary given attack number one? How, so hold on, you're 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 generating your own ephemeral key at this point, and you're sending yeah, that's right. You're sending a, a vouch box with just a, a, an X key that's unrelated to like the actual authentic user's X key. So is this a variant of that first attack where I don't need to steal an ephemeral key from the person? That's the, that's the correct. Point. Yeah. So yes, the first attack, we regard it as a little bit more theoretical because we didn't give a mechanism by which you could grab yeah. the ephemeral private key. And this attack too uh, sidesteps that. <laughs> okay, I take I take it back. This is not stunt cryptography. It's, wait, this is totally stunt cryptography. <laughs> but I guess you really do need to jump the motorcycle into the helicopter in this case. So yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I give it to you. Okay, <laughs> we'll try to do better next time and make it more stunty for you. I don't know how much stuntier you can really get at this I point. We have a bunch of things in the pipeline. You wouldn't believe. Uh, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I could tell you. Thomas, do you think you could define and then maybe give us a ranking of the various uh, of stunt cryptography and various attempts? I mean, at Drown it? is the canonical. Drown is the canonical, like you know, new variants of Blakenbacher, like padding and stuff like that. That's definitely, I, I think, that's the gold standard. But this getting somebody to send an instant message that contains a public key that gets formatted in part by PKCS seven to an encrypted version of that public key is definitely. It's like, yeah, it's. It's Fast and the Furious shit right there. <laughs> it's Fonzie motorcycle over shark, but not on fire yet. 
<laughs> I just want to point out there is a variant of Drown that just used an implementation bug in SSL in OpenSSL that let you avoid having to learn all of that Blankenbacher crap, which <laughs> is <laughs> <laughs> the part that I contributed. <laughs> Whereas uh, uh, people much smarter than me, Nimrod Avaram, came up with the Blankenbacher stuff. Okay, th- 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 there's more for us to talk about here, right? So we should probably yes. move on to the next setting of attacks here. We were talking earlier about the ability to reorder and suppress messages because they have metadata right. that would let them resolve the, the ordering of messages, but they they didn't authenticate it. So an attacker can strip it up. Which is also like a hard problem for implementers of end-to-end and secure messengers. Like it's a thing that you don't usually think that much about when you're like, ah, I'm going to ratchet and I'm going to keep these you know, keys preserved and I care about all these things. Like ordering of messages, which is handled, you know, the server is supposed to ferry them and they have to deliver them, but you also have to have a little bit of cryptographic guarantees that, you know, you can detect that these uh, messages are giving, being handed to you in the right order and you can do things chained in the right order. And these set of vulnerabilities is definitely like how this can go wrong and not just in the like delivery side of it. So I was very interested in these. I said somewhere else that like, I, I keep saying that the matrix vulnerabilities were probably more devastating than these vulnerabilities, but like, that's true. But like the outcome of this paper is that Threema looks like 50 times weirder than matrix does. Right. And <laughs> and there's a vulnerability in that setting that kind of, you know, nails that down for me. Right. So there's a point at which if you reinstall Threema, you lose the collection of all previous nonces that, that were used that you somehow needed to keep. Can can we get into why we're keeping a like a, a collection of nonces? Because you choose them randomly for every message that you send. So if you want to avoid replays, you better store all the nonces you ever saw. If also if you want to avoid a nonce reuse vulnerability, you better store all the nonces you ever generated and make sure you never use one twice. And also if you care about reflection attacks, you better keep track of all the nonces you ever sent and you ever received. That's the rationale, basically. Is this a consequence of of the EDE protocols, like the key exchange there and the way key derivation works? Or am I, am I just like not noticing all the other protocols that don't have the big collection of nonces that they've sent? <laughs> <laughs> this this protocol is outstanding in terms of the number of nonces that it needs and, and it keeps. And uh, I guess most other protocols settled for using something like a counter and, you know, maybe keeping track of the last counter value. Like, that's like what the TLS record protocol does, right, essentially. Yeah. And if you have a protocol running over TCP, some kind of reliable transport, then that's more than enough. Because, hey, if, if things start arriving out of order or the, the nonces are all wrong, then you're probably under attack. So it's probably a good yeah. idea to terminate the connection right there. So, yeah, it's not easy to see why it was done that way. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. But the, the net net of this is, is straightforward, right? Like, it's basically we're, we're recapitulating the... The previous attack where we could just strip off the metadata and lose ordering here it's like okay if you if you reinstall you lose your you know your vault of previous nonces and then you have no way of distinguishing whether something has been replayed or not because you lost the nonce exactly yeah don't don't lose the nonces <laughs> they should back them yeah. up in the JSON. <laughs> oh. ouch. ouch yeah it's also to be noticed that uh Introducing nonces straightforwardly also puts another problem that the Threema people actually noticed that you could then uh, sort of get two nonce databases and then see mm-hmm. sort of that there's there's some correlation between the nonces. Maybe there's a nonce here, and there's the same nonce at the same point, so they, they can check that if they are communicating in some way. So what they do is they hash the nonce. Nonces in, um, in the AD are like 24 bytes long, but hashing them with charge 56 brings them to 32 and they don't strip them off. So that's, that's eight, bar, eight bytes more in your storage. 
Wouldn't the same two nonces have the same hash, or are they also salting them? Uh, they're salted with the identity okay. of the of the device owner. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Signal doesn't have this non-storage problem because it uses a, a proper AAD with additional data, basically, or what? Yeah, pro- proper counters, I think, is okay. is what to do, right? Okay. And mo- most protocols do, do that. Yeah. Or you might you might use a counter on a sliding window, for example, if you're DTLS or something, right? Right. Yeah. But Signal also uses like because of the ratcheting, you have a different key for every message, so you don't really care about mm. the nonce, actually, right? Yeah. Yeah. And- but the threema is long-term Diffie-Hellman with your party at the other end. Right. And so nonces yep. really matter, whereas with the ratcheting, the double ratchet, every message is a different from a different Diffie-Hellman. And so you don't even care that much about nonces yep. because even if you haven't received another message from the other side in a while, you're doing the other side of the ratchet. And so you don't worry so much about that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You could even set the nonce just to be the all zero string in, in signal, as long as you only ever use each key once, right? Then you're, yeah. you're still good. Yeah, I love that double ratchet. Mm-hmm. It's so nice for stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's attack four and attack five, the compromot wait, attack. Wait, 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 yes, wait, wait, yes. wait. It's been made yes. clear to me that you guys have no business talking about the compromot attack because it was, oh, it doesn't <laughs> matter because it was previously reported. <laughs> yeah, but we just thought it was fun. We thought it was a nice gun. Maybe not as classy <laughs> as the other one, but still, you know, we're just trying to put content in there for you, Thomas. Okay. Go Convergent on. evolution. So basically, there's there's a registration protocol, and mm. there's the end-to-end protocol, and they interact with each other. They shouldn't interact with each other, but we find ways to make them interact. So in the registration protocol, you have to prove knowledge of your private key. And right. at that point, what you do is you encrypt a message to uh, a long-term Diffie-Hellman value chosen by the server. Well, if the server chooses that long-term value to be Bob's public key... Guess what? You just created an end-to-end <laughs> message that looks like it came from Alice going to Bob. Awesome. Yeah. And somebody else notified them of that bug uh, in 2021, and they fixed it by doing better domain separation. Hey, yeah. another another nice place where domain separation comes in yeah. handy. This is funny because I've heard a lot of discussion lately about, do we care about deniability? in our end-to-end encrypted messaging protocols. Do we care about the cryptographic ability to say, you can't prove that I sent that message under my public-private key pair? And this seems to be like, not the same setting where we care about, where people talk about deniability, but it's a very related setting of people being like, haha, like you just did that thing. And so maybe if the like, signing and sending of messages in this in this uh, end-to-end encrypted messaging protocol had deniability, this attack would be less devastating or something? What do you think? <laughs> well, in general, the, the, the thing is, there is some deniability because, I mean, okay. the, the messages are not signed. They are just, they, they have the Mac that is from the AD. Uh, okay. So sort of either party could have uh, created a message, of course. But the the point being here that is the ser- is a server that it's inserting a new message and you don't okay. expect that right so if you okay. receive a message from Alice then and you know you did you didn't create that message then it must come from Alice but it's actually mm-hmm. the server. Okay, got it. Fun. <laughs> How much do we care about deniability as a property? Like, right, like I feel like a it lot. showed up in OTR. It, it, tur- it yeah, it turns out like a lot, right? Like this came up during the last election, right? Where like. 
people were oh, using yeah. the I forget this I, I don't I don't take SMTP seriously. The 2016 election or the 2020 it's whatever this election. oh where the, the stupid keys are the, the email yeah. the Hunter Biden oh uh, that email keys oh god yeah. I wrote a paper about this once I already forgot what they're called. <laughs> D- D-Kim? DKIM, yeah, DKIM yes. keys. DKIM, yeah. And then also, just if, if you're trying to come up with like a coherent model for how these, what, what security these things provide, like non deniability is a, it's a, it's a thing you're conceding to your attackers that you don't need. It's information or whatever that you're giving them that you don't need to give them. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess there wasn't so much of a discussion there, so much as me jumping and telling you guys what the right answer <laughs> but, was. It's, my- it's definitely like <laughs> it's come up when we're trying. You know, uh, one of the things that we can discuss as we. Uh, wrap up is standardization of protocols. And part of the reason that the Threema, these multiple th- protocols in the Threema service uh, existed because there was nothing to just grab off the shelf. Uh, you, you could argue that the, the client-server protocol, you could have grabbed TLS, but we there might have been reasons that the people were less trusting of uh, we didn't have TLS 1.3 when uh, Threema got off the ground, so maybe they weren't super jazzed about that. But when we're developing protocols nowadays, Signal has put a premium on non-deniability and or rather deniability that kind of is, comes from the OTR and all that sort of stuff. There have been discussions about, do we care about this? Do we really care about being able to go to court and say, I, you cannot prove that I sent that message? And apparently, like, we should keep talking about it because at least with DKIM, we kind of do care about it. But anyway... Last set of attacks is literally, I have your phone. I have one of the ends of the end-to-end messaging protocol. Say someone took your phone and was you don't have a good secure lock code and they were able to get over it, or you were compelled to unlock the device and unlock Threema. What does that let you do with Threema? Can you talk about attacks six and seven? We already mentioned a little bit about seven. <laughs> well, uh, so basically for uh, attack six, uh, the idea is that if you have an unlocked phone, and uh, I mean, this is reasonable because maybe you're in the house, you just left your phone for a few, for um, one minute there unlocked. Then someone else could just take it, press just a few buttons, and the app will ask, uh, okay, choose a password, and then it must be any random password that you can choose, and it will just give you your secret key, your long-term secret key, encrypted with that password, which means that you just choose a password of all zeros. That's my favorite password when I was testing Threema. And then you just get uh, a nice QR code that you can just take a, take a photo of and then you just relock the phone and then just leave it there. And then the other person will never notice that it has been cloned because if the attacker is smart, uh, there, is, there are ways not to be detected. And then you, you're just cloning the entire, uh, the entire application. You can just authenticate as the user. You can delete messages because if you acknowledge a message to the server, then the server will not try to send it again to the correct user. And the next time, right? So there are, and of course, then you can read all of the end-to-end encrypted messages that uh, that are there. So if you can mix it with the compromised server model, then you can just take all of the just end-to-end encrypted messages and encrypt them. So yeah, because of the lack of forward secrecy, there's no more uh, confidentiality there. I hate that. So this is part of a feature that's supposed to let you move things around between devices or back things up. And what it lets you do is just, if I were an evil maid or something like that, I could just yeah. be like, do, 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 do. Ooh, I have the capability without you ever noticing into the future that I have uh, been able to extract everything and get your key and, and unlock all of that sort of stuff. I hate that. Exactly. And this so like, what does it mean? What, what do we call that in cryptography when I compromise you now and you cannot recover 
in the future. You might think yeah. that's called forward security, but it's not. It's, it's called post-compromise security, right? Or backward security it used to be called classically. So, like, this is a, a violation of a pretty desirable security goal. And, you know, we were, we were critiqued a little bit in public for, like, if you own the phone, then you've lost all security completely. What? How can you hope to, you know, get anything? Well. <laughs> and, yeah, but the point is that now we can just, in a few seconds, extract the key piece of information, your long-term private key, that enables you to be eavesdropped upon forever, basically. Yeah, because to compare to Signal, the the ratcheting allows a, a not just the forward security, but the post-compromise security so that, yes, if you were an evil maid and you were had access to an unlocked phone with Signal, someone else on my, on my other device that, say, paired, I could re-key and the adversary does not have access to my new stuff going into the future because I have re-keyed and I have told all of my friends new phone, ignore other phone, and the adversary will not have access to new messages going into the future. Right. So there is a there is a difference uh, in the protocol of what access to one of the ends gives you into the future. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And it matters. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. spot on. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've put it so much more clearly than we ever managed when we were talking to, <laughs> talking to journalists about this, right? Yeah. Hard, hard point to get across. And then the last one that we we touched on uh, briefly is the Jackie uh, Chan version of the previous vulnerability <laughs> uh, is is just compression in the backup system. And all of these end to end secure uh, messengers seem to evolve a backup system in some way. And that's because people lo lose their devices. I drop my phone in the toilet or I left my laptop at the at the airport or something having some sort of secure backup tends to happen to evolve in these systems that involve real humans using real devices. But it involves compression before encrypting, and it reminds me of something called crime. So can you tell me about the number seven? <laughs> yeah. So the idea is that there is this service that they call Threema Safe, and it's their way of doing cloud backups. So you just upload your data to the cloud and then whenever you want to restore your account from another device, for example, you just say, hey, this was my old ID and this is a password that I can use to, to decrypt a backup. And then the server will send you back the backup and then you can just restore your account. Mm -hmm. And the way this is done is that periodically your client composes this JSON with your ID, your private key in Base64, and then some other information, but most remarkably, it also adds your contacts, uh, including their nicknames. And Your contacts? Your contacts, yes, exactly. Huh, huh, so huh. you have uh, nicknames and IDs, uh, and uh, interestingly enough, the nickname can be changed. So an attacker can just change their nickname, and they can influence the content of the backup. So you influence the content of the backup, you have compression, you have all the pieces that you can put together to put this, uh, this attack that is very similar to crime. And <laughs> so the idea is that you just change the nickname very slightly every single time, and then you just leak the private key piece by piece, base 64 character at a time. It's really, it's like, it's remarkably similar to crime in, in, the, in the way it lays mm -hmm. out, right? Because ultimately there's a single JSON blob, and that JSON blob somewhere earlier in the JSON blob has a secret, just like in an HTTP transcript. Earlier in the HTTP transcript, there's a cookie, right? But then we control plain text in that same JSON blob, and we can just vary it to trigger compression at different places and kind of do a byte-by-byte -byte attack on the previous secret. And the cherry on top was seeing Giuliano Rizzo and Tai Duong, the original Xor yes. ninjas, 
discussed this on, on Twitter. We we're like, oh yeah, this is crime. And we we're like, yeah, yeah it's crime. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> it's a place where it almost seemed like it was more work for them to line this up just so, so that you could replicate <laughs> crime in this JSON blob as opposed to just like, you know, they use WinZip already, right? Just have two files or something like that, right? I, I don't know. But the, the second best attack on the paper, clearly. Yeah. So how did Threema react to this and how did you disclose to them the vulnerabilities? Oh, quite well. If at all. So initially, actually, things things were great. We, we sent them an email saying, hey, here's our paper. Here's everything we found. Here's like a user's guide. Let's talk. And in that initial email, we, we talked about, you know, 90 days, industry standard. And yeah, we had uh, a meeting. So actually, it turns out that their HQ is a half hour train ride away from, from Surrey, uh, down the lake. Hey. So we went to uh, see them. Must be nice. Yeah. We went down to Faficon to, to visit their HQ. They gave us a guided tour of their office building. I'm not sure why, because it's just an office building. But anyway. And we sat down with them and we had a very serious discussion about the vulnerabilities we found and what their remediation plan was and what our publication plans were. It was all, it was all good. And much later in the process, they actually put out some, some fixes to some of the attacks in new releases of their code. And they gave us credit on their uh, change log effectively for doing that, which was great. And then they also informed us that they were going to roll out their new IBEX protocol, which is the forward secure kind of layer on top of the end to end protocol. Which, full disclosure, we've not looked at. We don't know if it's good yeah. or not. Uh, could I can't be, could be find fun any uh, details about it yet. So. I think uh, you would need to, yeah, I mean, you can look at their client source code and figure out what's going on if you have the, the okay. wherewithal to do that, the patience to do it too. And so that actually rolling out the forward secure um, aspect actually also remediated some of our attacks. So like things like the reordering attacks would no longer work against uh, in the, in the uh, compromised server model. So that was all good, and uh, then we, you know, came to the kind of agreed disclosure date of the of the ninth, and we put our paper out. We built a little bit, a little bit of a website, and they knew we were going to do that, and we also knew that they were going to have their blog post. And uh, we were also also contacted by a journalist, Lucas Meder, who works for the Neue Zürcher Zeitung or NZZ, which is like a very heavyweight Swiss newspaper, very widely read in kind of government and business circles. And so we agreed to to talk to him, and um, Thema also talked talked to him. So he wrote a nice article about the work, really aimed at a, a Swiss German audience. So yeah, up to that point, everything was great. <laughs> up to that point, <laughs> and then the tweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we did a little we did a little tweet thread early on the Monday morning. So it was the 9th of January, and you know the newspaper is now on the newsstands. I I actually bought a copy from my local newsagent and. Nice. Slightly disappointed to find us not on the front page, but I guess you know, <laughs> other things are happening in the world, so fair enough. Um, yeah, it was the Bolsonaro thing as that, well. That so was going oh, on. That's still our front page. Yeah. 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 So we ended up somewhere in the second, the economics and science section or something of the newspaper. And we did a little tweet thread about it. But then actually, uh, Threema put out a tweet. It was, we found it a little bit dismissive and it was a little bit disappointing given um, mm-hmm. you know, how, how we talked to them before. I mean, we knew they were, of course, they were not super happy about our, our attacks. They were not super happy about some aspects of the way we had worded things in our paper. Hmm. But then again, you know, we're, we're academics. We write papers. You know, that's what we do, right? So we're not going to be all sweetness and light in our, in our research paper. We're going to say it as we see it. And, you know, I think they found that difficult. I can understand why. You know, they're used by the Swiss government and the Swiss army. There are commercial considerations in play. It can have been easy on, on their side to see their their baby being, you know, murdered, even mm-hmm. if they were able to reanimate it by, you know, doing all the appropriate fixes. 
So they could have said, we're really grateful to the team. We think this is fantastic research. We've updated the protocol. It's now mm. as secure as we can make it. We welcome further analysis, blah, 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 right? Something like that. Yeah. Been great. But instead, they said that our claims were overblown and it was really sad to see how even students now are forced to over-exaggerate the importance of their work and then like see our blog for more details. And initially, we didn't really respond to that. <laughs> Other people did on our behalf. Um, I, I actually did retweet it and say I was a bit disappointed with that that way of like, yeah. covering our work. And that's fine, right? Um, the, the court of public opinion had a lot to say about it. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit unfortunate because any free analysis of your uh, software or your you know cryptographic protocol is and helping to make it better is always welcome. You're always trying to do the best thing for your users and to, to do good work. Um, so it, it could have easily been a win-win of these things have been found and remediated and also... With these findings in mind, here's our new forward to care protocol, yeah. and we're rolling that out too. And everyone is happy together, and we're improving the security of our users. Yeah. But they kind of they kind of punch down on you and be like, "These are overblown because we rolled out this thing which was not the thing that you analyzed that only just got released and did a bit of a shell game." Yeah. That was unfortunate. Yeah. I'll just say that unfortunate <laughs> for them, oh, no, yeah. not for us, right? Because everybody who's in the know could see exactly what was going on there. So, yeah. Yeah. I am happy. I would like to see more about their IBEX protocol. I would like to see a more in-depth, at least, description of the protocol because they don't have one right now. I don't have all the time in the world to go spelunking in all of their code bases to see how it works. <laughs> but um, I'm happy that they are improving their protocol to be more forward secure. And uh, good job on the initial uh, responsible disclosure interaction with uh, good faith researchers who came to you with results. Awesome. That was also interesting because we could see that they cared about their users. They were super responsive. They yeah. like answered to our email like within a few hours of having sent it. Good. And then we met with them. But then they do clearly missed crypto people in their team. Mm -hmm. So I think they needed more of that to also fully understand the implications from an academic standpoint mm -hmm. of our findings. Mm -hmm. And of course, like even if any one of these attacks might seem like the stunt crypto of like, ah, I'm going to throw 8,000 core hours of compute to get just the right key for this thing. As we've discussed before, these things have a way of layering and interacting and like one chink over here, another chink over there. And all of a sudden you can have something much, much more serious than any one yep. of its parts. So you you generally just want to kind of take all those things together and not just dismiss any one of them yep. as like, ah, well, you can't do much with this one thing. It's like, yeah, well, you don't want to leave any of those chinks because sometimes you can just chain them together. Exactly. Well, one thing to say, Deirdre, is that sometimes, I think you saw it also with the matrix vulnerability disclosure, that mm. there's more than one force operating within an organization. So oh, all yeah. of interactions with the technical people there were great, uh, but then something went wrong in the communication towards the end and you know we had a different outcome. And I think that also more or less happened with the matrix case. I think the CEO there went off the range a little bit and um, mm. yeah. It can happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm less sure that's the case with Matrix, even though I have a higher a higher regard for what Matrix is trying to do. So. Okay. At any rate, uh, it's a fantastic paper. Right? As always, Kenny, the James Cameron of these kinds of papers, this is uh, all, all fantastic <laughs> stuff. You guys I'll take that. I'll take that. 
<laughs> don't bet against Jim Cameron. Don't bet against a Kenny Farrison paper. <laughs> great work, the whole team. I, I mean, for for a master's thesis, what what a great thing to come up with. It's just awesome. Just great, oh, yeah. great, great stuff. Do we have any lessons learned out of this research? I think one of them is sort of, well, you can't go back in time and say you should have used XYZ protocol before it was really available. But going into the future, there is some work to try and standardize messaging protocols. We have TLS 1.3. So if you were trying to build 3 nowadays, you probably wouldn't use a, a C2S client to server protocol. You'd use TLS 1.3 instead or WireGuard or, you know, or noise or whatever. But besides that, like we've done a lot of talk about formal methods and modeling and things like that, as opposed to software is kind of like tending to a garden that changes and grows over time. But cryptographic protocols don't really seem to do well when they kind of grow the same way. So any takeaways in that sort of realm? Well, I, I guess there is something to be said about this proactive versus reactive design of cryptographic protocols. Yeah. Like, I think the sort of conclusion we have come to is it's better to build a more limited protocol, like mm. Wargat style. And then when it breaks, you tear it all down and then you change it rather than trying to update things and, and have this sort of stratification mm. for which you will have to pay the price eventually. Mm. And if you do have multiple interacting protocols, because if you have a messenger, you'll probably have an end-to-end -end yep. a, a backup solution, such and such domain separation, <laughs> keeping keys that you might use the same parameters like an ED25519 or a Curve25519 curve, but you should not have keys that are used in one protocol be also usable in another protocol. And this is both enforceable at a protocol level, but also at a software level. And you should be able to never the twain shall meet because we saw problems with that in Matrix and we've seen problems with that in Threema. Uh, that's a big lesson that we keep learning over and over again. <laughs> in terms of formal models, like if you abstract model something like that in, in a symbolic verifier, yeah. you would have the symbolic verifier scream at you Oh, I can do this and this and this and this. So it's there. We suspect it's it's a tool that would have worked. Mm. We we only tried like a very small model, symbolic model, but we are not expert in that field. But mm. we, we we think that that could have helped. Cool. Yeah. I have one more lesson. Yeah. If your core business is cryptography, employ some damn cryptographers. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, there's a lot of small companies out there that are trying to innovate and do things with crypto. Any medium-sized company that really needs to, if it's part of really the core of what you're doing, then either employ some permanently or maybe get some consultants in to help you out. Because, yeah. you know, with crypto, like we know it's a complete food gun and every single bit matters. That's why I love yeah. it so much, right? That's why we... <laughs> That's where these stunt attacks come from, from these weird, small, little flaws mounting up and causing problems. And one of the issues is, though, a lot of cryptographers these days are really more theoretically oriented. Um, mm. I'd love to see more groups doing doing the kind of work that we do. There's there's a few really great other groups doing this, of course. Um, you've had them on your podcast, um, <laughs> but I think I think we need more of this, not less. Yeah, I would agree. Could not possibly agree more. <laughs> well, we will leave you guys to your happy weekend, your raclette and your kirsch. And thank you so much for taking the time. 
Kenny, Matteo, Ken, thank you very much and thank you for your paper. It's very fun. Thank you for keeping the security podcasting industry alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Security, cryptography, whatever is a side project from Deirdre Connolly, Thomas Patachik, and David Adrian. Our editor is Nettie Smith. You can find the podcast on Twitter at SCWPod and the hosts on Twitter at Durham Crushulum, at TQBF, and at David C. Adrian. You can buy merchandise at merch.securitycryptographywhatever.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>